everyone and welcome to Teeth and Tales. I'm your host Dr. Shadi Manacheri and today's episode is all about buying a dental practice and our guests today are Kate Beach and Paul Harris who are both solicitors who between them have acted in over 500 cases of acquisition of dental practices and in today's episode we talk about what the current market is like if you are considering buying a dental practice and lots of different things that you need to be prepared for um, in this process of acquisition of dental practice be it a mixed practice with NHS in private income or a purely private dental practice. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Carterborn Solicitors and I really hope you enjoy it and without further ado, let's get into it. Hi Kate, hi Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both? Good, thank you. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm very excited for today's episode and I feel like I say that about every episode, but this is a topic that's close to my heart. And I'm really, really interested to learn more about it. But before we get into the topic, could you both tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got here, please? I felt like I've kind of got into dental sales and acquisitions by by proxy. So I started my training contract, um, did a bit of residential property. So this was 12, 13 years ago. Um, at that point, the kind of the dental market was was picking up quite a lot and and my principal at the time was, I think, connected to IDH, who's now my dentist. Um, so we ended up picking up quite a lot of, of deals um, during my training contract. And then they kind of transitioned me during my halfway through my training contract to, to start specializing in, in dental acquisitions. And then 12 years on, um, I'm still here, <laughs> still acting for dentists. So, yeah, that's me. And how have you found it working with dentists compared to other professionals acquiring businesses? Uh, interesting. Um, I'd probably say there's there's been quite a, a shift. I would say that when I first started doing dental acquisitions, there was there were dentists who were running dental practices. Where now they're people that I'd probably say people who are running dental practices are more entrepreneurial. They understand the business a bit more. Um, so yeah, I feel like it has changed. It's changed a lot over the, the last 12, 13 years. Because it's like a whole world in itself. I feel like as dentists, you have to know clinical dentistry really well. And then if you do want to get into practice ownership, it's like you have to have this whole other side to you that's entrepreneurial and business-minded and good with numbers. And a lot of us, unfortunately, aren't that way inclined. And uh, Some people are. It wasn't that when when I first started, it, like I said, when I when you'd speak to... To dental practice owners it was almost like they fell into owning a practice it was like a natural transition but they weren't they weren't entrepreneurial they weren't business-minded and they just kind of made a success by being a good a good dentist and building a a, a, a strong um patient list where now i'd probably say over the last four or five years of of doing it there's been well it's probably say the majority of people that you speak to have got this real entrepreneurial spirit and and really want to kind of understand the business of dentistry which mm-hmm. has been quite interesting and also quite challenging yeah, yeah. that's quite interesting to know that it's only happened in the last four or five years I I would have imagined it would be a um, longer time frame but that's that's good to know I mean Kate might have a, a different view on that that's just my sort of perspective <laughs> on it no I think I think that's a fair view um 
I think that's a fair view. I think they ha I think dentists have changed. Um, the age of dentist buying have changed as well. Um, it's, you know, the age and the, the life cycle that they're in. I often talk about that quite a lot about the life cycle of when you're going to buy your first practice. So I think that that does change things um, slightly. But yeah, that, that, I guess the entrepreneurial stuff also comes from a little bit of um, you know, dentistry 12 years ago, as in any business, probably wasn't on Instagram and all the rest, whereas now it's all very much on, you know, social media driven and, and sort of cosmetic dentistry is, is so popular these days that the average dentist practice that we were dealing with 12 years ago was your very much your standard NHS practice that maybe just did a bit, did a bit of private practice um, dentistry on the side for those who required it as and when. So I think the type of dentistry has also changed, which changes obviously the practices on the market and who's buying them, um, very much so. Um, which we're going to get into a little bit later on yeah. about the exact details of the practices that are now being sold and, and bought. What was your journey like, Kate, into helping dentists buy dental practices? Um, so fairly similar to Paul's. Um, I acted when I was a trainee. I'm not going to age myself by saying when, um, but <laughs> when I was a tra trainee, I acted for um, a chap who used to buy care homes. So I'd always done healthcare related things. Um, and when I was doing those transactions, I happened to um, be instructed on, for, it was for a lender, it was for RBS as it was at the time. And the chap who was, who was the relationship manager was lending um, on the care home said, oh, I've got these dental transactions. Do you want to have a, have a go at those? They're, they're, they're quite interesting. So I started doing that. And then now that's all I do every day, all day. And I have been doing that probably for about 14 years now, um, all day, every day. So I've seen it all in that sense. And I've seen it also go around in, I know I call it the cycle. There is very much a cycle. You know, what happened 10 years ago is sort of reappearing again now. Um, so that, that that's how it came about um, and I've just naturally um, been promoted along the way um, and now head up the healthcare team here at Carter Bond um, and uh, I've acted on a, an awful lot of practice purchases that's for sure I've probably seen it all before that's that's the thing I often say it's very rarely a new thing that comes up if it does it's very exciting and interesting. That's really good because I feel like if it is a first time buyer that you're acting for, I feel like they have all the nerves and all the excitement mixed up, whereas you've got the um, experience on your side and you're like, nope, don't worry, I've got this covered. Yeah, um, so it's, it's probably it's a good that. Yeah, I, I try to be very calm with them and very relaxed. It, I mean, I mean, we'll, we'll come to this, I'm sure, about timescale soon, but I often say, you know, we'll probably be talking for the next six to nine months every day, more so than you probably talk to your other half in that, <laughs> in that regard. Um, but often when this, the purchase completes, that's it. You've no reason to speak to them necessarily again, other than to inquire how they're getting on. And I've, I've had many a dentist ring me up and go, I can't work out how the photocopier works. So I can't, what do I do about <laughs> this agreement with these people? And I'm just like, well, well it's not my remit that bit. But um, yeah, it, it, we've made friends, I think, haven't we, Paul? We've got a lot of clients who are yeah. similar ages to ourselves. So we've made some friends along the way, certainly. But it's weird because Kate and I have, have been on the other side so when I first started um, doing dental practices Kate was more established than me but she was working for um, another firm and then she came and joined um, come and join me at another firm um, then left that firm so we we're on the other side again and then we've kind of met again um, like a, a year later or two years later after yeah. after her leaving so yeah, I mean, I it's, like it's, it's a, such a niche market. Like you know, is. dentistry is such a small world. You're going to bump into 
um, other dentists and uh, colleagues everywhere you go. So I imagine that being a solicitor working, you know, on acquisitions and dental practices, it's such a small niche world that you are going to end up bumping into each other. And also, of course, we can't tell one dentist that we act for another dentist. So I've got a group of um, clients who are all sort of, you know, a mile apart from each other in Essex. And they all, they've all been referred to me by each other, but I can't say to the other one that <laughs> I act for the other one. And it always makes me smile. I think it's a lovely thing that, but um, yeah, we, we know a lot of people in the industry as a result, Paul and I. And is it is it dentist is it mainly dentists buying dental practices because you would assume so but there's actually other you know just businessmen I've seen literally just someone who's not related to dentistry whatsoever but they're business minded and they buy dental practices what would you say is the ratio of say dentists buying practices to businessmen or women buying dental practices so to own a dental practice there's a little bit of so if you are just your general average businessman you're woman um you're you would still need a dentist pretty much on your books if you're certainly buying an nhs contract because you can't mm-hmm. have um um you, you need to always have a dentist but for those they they might just have their associate um acting um as a dentist um a lot of the purchases that we are seeing that are not first-time buyers who would you know the dentists who are, who are instead what we would call family businesses or or small corporates they don't like to be called small corporates they much prefer to be called family businesses um they tend to, they're on the increase I would say but ultimately there is there tends to be a dentist somewhere along the line mm-hmm. whether it's a son cousin friend that is probably the reason they've got into it um it's different of course for the the larger well-known corporates that's a different um kettle fish together mm. and I used to think uh because I've always wanted to buy my own dental practice since before I did dentistry it's one of the reasons I did dentistry and um, at the beginning, I was very much scared and apprehensive about the concept and the prospect of buying dental practice because I just kept thinking, I'm not ready. Um, I'm just getting the grips of dent- you know, clinical dentistry. I don't know if I can start dealing with the business side of things. And once I did feel I was sort of ready to start looking, I realized that actually by the time you decide that you're ready until you b- find a dental practice to buy – it's not necessarily a quick process. It can actually take a very long time for you to find the right practice um, to buy that works for you. And, you know, as we know now, squat dental practices are on the rise. I imagine because a lot of people are finding that problem that actually their ideal practice doesn't exist. So they they go about um, creating their own. And this is something I didn't know anything about before I started looking. Um, so, and, and the, the, you know, the scope of this podcast isn't to talk about how to find a dental practice. It's very much about once you found it, what do you do to buy it? Um, but would, would you say your clients have sort of, um, in terms of their timescales of looking for a dental practice before they find, have you found that there's a trend or does it very much depend on the circumstances? I, I would say it does take quite a while for them to find the one. And, and actually, I don't think the one, may, it's a bit like buying a house, isn't it? The one doesn't really exist. Mm. So. Um, and in that regard, they've probably had to go to some sort of sealed bids to get a good one. And um, they probably pay more than the asking price for the right kind of practice. Um, there seems to be a lot of competition for them, which, again, I think is why the squat practices have become more popular, because you're more in control. You can find premises that you like. You can agree terms that you like. You can employ staff that you like. And there is obviously a market for the industry. Um, so I don't know, Paul, what, what would you think of 
No, I'm just, I was just kind of thinking that you, the buyers that kind of go out there and start looking for practice probably quickly realize that one, it, like Kate was saying, it, it's competitive. And two, they're never going to find something that ticks all the boxes. So all of a sudden you have this checklist of things that you want in terms of a criteria of what sort of practice that you want. And then after maybe a couple of months of, of speaking to the agents and scouting around, they'll probably quickly um, reduce that list down and go, right, okay, well, this is, these are my top three priority of, of things that I'm looking for and, and, um, and realize that that's the only way that they're going to get a practice because they're never going to tick all the boxes unless, well, even with a squat practice, it's a bit of an unknown, but they're never going to find something that, that meets probably a, a long list of criterions for them. Um, so yeah, like I said, I think they, I think buyers will starting that process of, of doing your research, seeing what's out there is, is a good exercise. Even if you're, even if you're not dead set on buying a practice, just kind of seeing prices, speaking to people, speaking to a, speaking to a solicitor, speaking to an accountant, speaking to the dental agents, just to get a feel for the market and get a feel for what's involved in it, I think is a good exercise. Yeah, I think I agree. And also just start looking at the numbers because the numbers themselves are such a minefield. And I know you're going to have people advising you on, along the way, but it really does make sense for you to understand them as well. I mean, I, I'm still trying to understand them, but <laughs> at least they don't scare you once you've had a look at them. Uh, I, think that, I think that's true as well, certainly because if you're starting to look at practices, you get thrown, you know, a prospectus and it's assumed you know what all those numbers and figures mean and that they all add up correctly as to how you're going to run that practice. I, I would absolutely agree with you. And also, you once you've agreed, you know, your offer, you've then got to, for the vast majority, go off to a lender to to raise mm. the finance and, and understanding your own personal finances as well. It's a bit like getting the mortgage. It all feeds in together. So the more prep you've done in that regard, the better placed you are for making an offer. And if it's in a competitive market as well, um, which for the right practices it still is, um, you're you're the best placed you can ever be. And I guess compared to other businesses, dental practices, buying a dental practice is still a relatively safe business acquisition. You know, people are always going to need dentists. And I think we really did see that during COVID and during the pandemic that actually healthcare professionals are, um, you know, very well placed in continuing their business um, when, you know, even unexpected things come to light. But what what is the market currently uh, like for buying dental practices, especially after COVID and, and all of those things? I would say it's pretty much always been a seller's market, um, very much being the case. And if we were to roll back 10 years, talk about safety of practices um, and how healthy they are, you know, when we had the last recession, we obviously as corporate lawyers do all the business transactions. They were all falling, you know, away, um, whereas the lenders were super keen to lend still on a dental practice. So, you know, they they are, they do they are quite tough in the sense that they, they managed to write that out. But it's very much always been a seller's market. I think it just... What's maybe changed is the type of practice that is sought. So when I first started, everybody always wanted an NHS practice, but now maybe not quite so much the same. They want a sort of mixed practice. Um, but again, the prices are still right for the for the right kind of practice. The issue we see um, is that your average mixed practice that is tired in need of investment, um, that's still being marketed for a high price and it's it's those where it's a bit of a price and is, is the interest in it and it's maybe that's where there is a, a general slowdown but there is a general slowdown at the minute just because of those changing interest right rates um whether that's your first time buyer or a corporate buyer um and certainly the types of buyers that are out there yeah um 
just picking up the the point that you made about COVID, um, from speaking to dealing with new inquiries, speaking to buyers, speaking to to sellers, there seems to be a lot of fatigue in the dental industry. Um, whether that be kind of sellers who weren't looking to retire for five, 10 years, but have now fast-tracked that process because, because they've decided, you know what, I've had enough, particularly with, with NHS practices. Um, and then you couple that with um, associates who probably felt really exposed during, during COVID. Um, and immediately after um, practices opened again, I had quite a, a number of inquiries of, of associates wanting to jump into um, practice ownership because they felt that that, that provided more stability, which is quite interesting. Um, so I think you can kind of combine the the sellers who have fast-tracked that retirement process to associates who think, you know what, now's the time COVID's happened. It's we can't wait around anymore. I want to make a I want to make a, a decision and 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 decide to own my own practice. So there's from my perspective, there's a large pool of sellers and there's there's also a um, a pool of buyers out there who are who are buying. That's quite interesting. I guess it's all it all depends on your perspective and what you've experienced and what you found. Everyone's going to have a different take on the pandemic depending on their circumstances. But I think I would agree as an associate, you really felt exposed. Um, but also equity as a principal, you still obviously had all the overheads and you didn't have the income. So I can understand both sides. Um, if somebody is considering buying a dental practice, what would you say based on your experience of all the transactions you've seen, what would you want buyers to know before um, embarking on this process? I think going a little bit back on what we were talking about, about checklist things, I think it's really important to be clear on what you are buying. Um, it's I, I think as a buyer, you can speak to an agent, you can get perspectives and you can see a, you know, beautiful photographs, for want of a better way of putting it. But actually what the reality is and knowing those numbers is incredibly important. Um, and we see a lot of practices that require that investment because post-COVID, a lot of the sellers are tired, they've had enough um, and they want out, which is obviously a good thing for buyers because it allows them to buy in. Um, but this process of being able to find out about what you are buying is called due diligence. And it's probably one of the most important parts when you are buying a practice or indeed any business. It's an information gathering exercise and it's there ultimately to test the price. So if you are paying a million pounds for a practice, is it worth a million pounds once you see all that information and once you find out about whether it's complying with the, with the various regulations that it's got to do so and whether it's meeting its NHS targets, or whether it's got any staff issues, those sort of things that aren't shown in the prospectus. Um, but equally, this due diligence, um, if you are a buyer that needs a lender or indeed an investor, it's the same for the corporates, um, then they need to be satisfied with that due diligence, otherwise they simply won't lend. Um, and just sort of link to that really as well, we see a number of practices that are sold as company sales, so usually private practices are sold as, as company sales. And in that scenario, it's even more important to be clear what you're buying because you inherit the historical liability of that company. So it's, it, it's very important. Another one I would say is the deposits. Um, it's, it's often asked for by a seller and indeed an agent, and it's to take it off the market in inverted commas. Um, it's to grant you some exclusivity period and it's usually between about one and three percent of the overall purchase price but I mean our overall view is unless it's a, a, an absolute necessity and a seller won't sell unless you pay it I would avoid it because to be honest you spend far too long negotiating the terms of that deposit agreement you know what happens if the deal falls away who gets the deposit back 
and being the classic argument and it just sets everybody off on the wrong footing instead you'd be better off or maybe the better objective is, is to get the transaction moving quickly start that process off and to try and create a, a really positive dialogue with the seller from day one very much so um yeah for me it's making sure you're you're prepared i think one of the the things that the buyers aren't quite prepared for at the outset is um the cqc process um they have to be aware that they're going to have to do a, a fitness to registration interview um, there's always kind of a, a panic before a week before that they've got to get all these documents prepared policies procedures so i, I guess kind of knowing that that process is, is going to happen making sure you that you've got these things in place before that will probably um, reduce the amount of of stress for for buyers um the cqc application in itself can take around 10 to 12 weeks so the earlier that you can kind of start that process, the less stressful that things will, will become when you get into the nitty gritty of, of the transaction. So I think for me, one of the, the key takeaways is, is starting that CQC process right from the outset, from day one, um, but also having someone who can manage that that process for you. Because when I first when I first started um, kind of dealing with the, the CQC aspect when it got introduced, um, you had a lot of dentists who were trying to cut costs by dealing with the CQC application themselves. Mm. And it, it was an absolute nightmare. Um, they didn't have the time to do it. They'd get themselves in a mess. They'd submit the application. There'd be missing bits of information. Um, so I think, yeah, for me, it's making sure that you're prepared for the CQC process and getting someone who can help you with that process. Yeah, I, th I think as well, linked link to that and sort of bringing them together about his timings. Um, I always say to anybody, whether I'm speaking to a buyer or a seller, the average purchase takes between six to nine months. Um, and that is just how it goes. You, you very rarely can speed them up. I've done one, the quickest one I think I did was eight weeks. Um, that is, I, I say it because it's such a rare um, a moment you, you need to factor in six to nine months and also for those who associates and we were talking about associates buying they obviously need to give notice um, in their current role so it's just about timings and factoring that in of, of where that sits. Just kind of picking up on that um, notice periods for associates one of the, the things that I was that's happened a couple of times to me over the, the last couple of years um, you'll start the transaction with a buyer and They'll be like, right, so where do we go from here? What's the next steps? I've already handed my notice in at my, my current practice. And there's just like a, an instant, oh, okay. <laughs> um, if you would have spoken to me before you did that, I would have told you not to do it. So obviously you've got to be conscious that you've got your your two or three months notice period to, to account for, which obviously we can try and manage once we start the transaction. But to hand that notice in before a transaction starts, before there's any sort of commitment is crazy. Um, See, this is the thing. I feel like, yes, you want to be prepared and you want to do things ahead of time, but equally there's, there is such a thing as too early. For example, with the CQC registration, I mean, does it have to be a certain point? Because as we know, until you complete, I mean, I don't know what it's like with buying a practice, but obviously say you're buying a residential home and until you've completed, in theory, everybody can pull out correct yeah um whereas I, I feel like it would be the same with a dental practice so when do you know that everybody is committed and everybody in, is in because if you 
submit your CQC application to take over and the deal for whatever reason doesn't go through, then how does that work? When do you know that it's safe for you to, for example, take on the CQC registration? Well, that, that CQC process, that won't get completed until both legal advisors, so seller solicitor and buyer solicitor, confirm that completion is taking place. So there's that reassurance oh, okay. that although that process starts, nothing will nothing will change until the solicitors confirm that that everything's the actual legal transactions completed. But it is, I think it is quite a key point about comfort. Um, it is exactly the same um, as uh, sort of the residential transaction you refer to. Anybody, either side can pull out and withdraw at any point all the way up until we have finally completed. We do sometimes have an exchange of contracts, sometimes a month before completion. That tends to be um, historically related to the NHS contract. We have to give 28 days notice of any change to the NHS contract. However, for most buyers these days, uh, very few are cash purchases, so most are relying on lending, and the lending doesn't come through until we complete. So if we exchanged um, before we complete, you know, a month before completion, then in those scenarios, we we tend to have to ask that the seller agrees that um, you know, exchange can be sort of put to one side if the lender was to not lend the money by the time of completion. So increasingly, we are seeing exchange and completion happen at the same time, which means, you know, your point about comfort, any either party can withdraw at any point up until the exact point we've said we've completed. Yeah, so I guess it's very important to time it so that it's early, but not too early. And, you know, like you said, with notice of an associate contract, for example, you need to time it correctly. Um, you mentioned share sale and asset sale. This is something that is really interesting to me because I don't understand it. And occasionally I get close to understanding <laughs> it. What's the difference between a share sale and an asset sale? Okay, so if I if I going to separate two practices out just because this is purely easy and for example purposes. For the vast majority of private practices that are on the market today, they will be limited companies. Um, for an NHS practice, they tend to be owned as individual sole traders. So if we just kept it as those two very simple examples, I know that that's not how the market completely sits, but it's a good way of sitting as examples. On your private practice, the, the practice itself would be owned by a limited company. So when it comes to sell, the shareholders tend to be the dentist, so Joe Bloggs dentist, he would sell or she would sell the shares in that company. And by selling that company, that company moves warts and all, as we call it, with all of its history and all of its liability onto the buyers. The buyer replaces the seller as shareholder and as director. But the company remains its own, its own entity. It remains in place. So any contracts that are in place with the company, any lease maybe that might be in place with the company stays the, stays the same. It's just the ownership of that company that stays, the, that, that changes from buyer to seller. On an asset deal, if you took an NHS practice, for example, um, it, they are rarely owned in limited companies because of the whole NHS contract structure that, that sits. And instead, in that scenario, you cherry pick the assets you want. So you, you, you pick the assets, which would be goodwill for the vast majority of it, and then the fixtures and fittings. So the reception chairs, the, the computers, the, the cabinetry that sits there, the x-ray machines, you, you cherry pick those out and you exclude the liabilities. Um, so you, you don't inherit something that's already existed. It starts afresh from completion onwards. Um, so that's the difference between a, a share sale and an asset one. Yeah. Would you say there's a benefit to one or they just have their pros and cons, depending on the circumstances? Is one easier to deal with from your side and from the buyer's side? Um, I think I think 
think there's a bit of hit and miss. So when I talked about, um, you know, the quickest transaction being sort of a eight transaction, that was a company transaction. It was a share um, sale that we acted for. Um, that shows that it can be done quicker because everything was already ready and in the company name. However, there's more paperwork to do. There's more there's more documentation to provide. So there's a bit of swings and roundabouts. I don't think there's one or the other, really, to be honest, is, is a preference or to be avoided in either circumstances. The issue I think we tend to find is the one that's in the middle of those two examples I give you, where you have a dentist that set up a limited company, but he's only half trading through it. Um, they might have the NHS contract sitting outside, but the income in the company. They might have some staff that are employed by the company, but not. And they've, they've done what we call a failed incorporation. Again, that's resolvable, but that, that's quite a common um, practice that might be on the market that the buyers might see. Fine. And we, we keep mentioning different practices, NHS and private practices. Um, is the process very different depending on whether it's an NHS or a mixed practice or a purely private practice? Is, is one easier to deal with than the other? Um, they're both relatively straightforward to deal with, but an NHS practice has the local area team to deal with. and We have the NHS um, contract to deal with. So therefore, just, just, just to give you a bit of background, the NHS contract can't transfer from a buyer to a seller or a seller to a buyer, should I say. Instead, we have to create a partnership. And it's that notice period that, that we have to give to the local area team um, uh, and that partnership documentation. And indeed, the CQC application is different that we just have to factor in. That is just a process. But with an NHS practice, yes, it is different. It's worth just mentioning as well um, that even if you are a private practice with, with a very small NHS contract, which is what I would normally call a children's only contract, but it's an exempt contract, um, it, we're still dictated to by that NHS contract, even though it is substantially a, a, a private a private practice. But yes, typically an NHS practice takes a couple of months longer than a, your average private practice. Mm-hmm. I think just to, to tag on to that, um, when would the, I know you, you've covered um, property with our colleagues on a previous podcast, but just to touch upon something quite quickly, when, when we're dealing with a, um, a leasehold property so when the um the property's um leasehold um and there's a third party landlord that can often cause quite well dependent on the landlord uh, can cause some delays in the in the transaction process i feel like timing is such a sensitive thing to give an estimate about because it all depends if everybody is very helpful and very friendly it can be a very quick and easy pro- process whereas if anybody is trying to be difficult and there's so many links in the chain that if, if one of these links is difficult, then it just delays the whole process. That's exactly every time I'm dealing with a new inquiry. The first question that comes out of, of anyone's mouth is what sort of timescales are we looking at? Um, and pretty much what you just said is 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 the answer. It's not we can give you a, a gauge, but there's so many different variables in a transaction um nhs private freehold leasehold if there's a third party landlord who the slip without i wouldn't name any names but solicitors on the other side who were who were dealing with um whether it's a difficult buyer or a difficult seller um the, the, there's so many variables in the transaction process that for us to kind of nail down even if they give us as much information as possible to nail down a time period is is really difficult um, and when I've I've kind of quoted a time period before to a client, they've stopped me to it. And yeah, 
never again. <laughs> never, <laughs> again. never again. It's always the thing that they're shocked about, though, when you say, oh, you know, an average one six to nine months. And they're like, what? When? How long? When? Um, it is, and also just to throw out timings, it can be the smallest thing. You know, you can be gearing up to complete and then somebody will say, hope oh, I'm going on holiday for all of July and August. <laughs> or I want it to complete the, the old, old favourite before Santa Claus arrives. It must complete before Father Christmas turns up on the door because it can't possibly complete on the 3rd of January. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of people's feelings to factor into <laughs> it as well. I'm going to be one of those people when the time comes. I'm, it's going to be all about my feelings. <laughs> just, just <laughs> I do feel at times I've become an agony after some people. But yeah. But it's a, it's timescales is a hard thing to balance. Yeah, Managing very. client expectations is always something that is is one of the more difficult parts of of managing the transaction. Um, because understandably, sellers want to to they've made the decision they want to exit and potentially either semi-retire or retire and equally a buyer wants to start reaping the rewards of of owning a practice and it's sensitive dealing with the sort of time scales is 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 hard yeah and this is a life-changing I guess moment for both of them for the seller and for the buyer so even though you're trying to get the logistical things sorted I guess feelings does come into play because it's a big thing for both of them both parties yeah massively massively I, I remember completing on one only last week or the week before and the seller was, was tearful it was you know it was, it was such a big thing for them they'd mm. had the practice for 25 odd years and they were tears of joy as well as relief but <laughs> yeah there was um it is it's, it's a lot it's ba- it's that balance and going back to you know what what does a buyer need to know when they start off if they know all this you know i'm sure paul will talk about communication but that's that's it's a really big one yeah and so uh, taking all of that into consideration if somebody is looking to buy what would be your advice to them what would be you know if you could tell them from all the experience you've had at the outset what they need to know what would you tell them to help Uh, this process along make it easier for them for for me it would I mean Kate just touched on touched upon it then communication is really important um you'll have you'll have occasions where there's no sort of doubt there might be an initial meeting when um, a buyer goes and views a practice and has a quick chat with the seller and then that will be their only lines of communication throughout the whole transaction. Um, I appreciate the certain individuals who might not feel comfortable having that open dialogue but from experience um, a buyer and a seller who have that dialogue from the outset who are talking communicating if there's any sort of hurdles throughout the transaction when it comes to negotiating having those lines of communication between buyer and seller is really important, really important because you can often you can often have blurred lines when solicitors are, are managing mm. the the dialogue and the lines of communication. Um, and quite often, what I'll do is if if the, if we've got a um, if we're struggling to to get past a bit of a roadblock in negotiations, I'll get on the phone to a buyer or seller. Are you speaking to the other party? It would really be beneficial if you could just have a conversation. Um, and try and talk through this point and, and talk it through amicably. Um, so, yeah, communication's really important. Because I guess so many things can get lost in translate, translation between solicitors, you know, because there's so many people involved. Uh, and I've often found this with other things in general. You know, if somebody's giving me a message, if, it, you know, the message is going through a messenger, 
things get so blurred and it can it's like Chinese whispers it can change completely by the time it gets to you so it makes sense to really get on the phone to the other party and I think you don't necessarily if you're not comfortable talking about the logistical side of things the financial side of things you can you know leave that to the solicitors and to the people who know what they're doing but I guess from a simple point of view just get on the phone and just sort things out simply and then let the details be worked out by other people involved definitely and especially with a lot of the communication between solicitors being by email you'll you'll find that emails might get forwarded to um direct to a seller or a buyer um and they'll get misinterpreted and it'll it'll leave a very sour taste there's been numerous occasions where um once say transactions have turned sour but things have 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 all of a sudden change quite dramatically in terms of it was quite a positive um process and then someone's interpreted something wrong that maybe got forwarded from the solicitor and um it it's all about different. the tone of the emails yeah it? exactly and, ev- <laughs> and ev- yeah and everyone can interpret things differently so yeah it's it's important that you can kind of jump on the phone and, and and have a chat and talk through certain things yeah and also I would say you know going back to you know the photocopier point but um that that you know after completion the people who know how to run that practice are the sellers so you know if you want to know how everything works and the actual the dentistry you know the, you know where where are things about you need to speak to them um being best friends with the with the seller in that scenario is, is far better and and those deals go through quicker they go through smoother they go through with less problems um um everybody knows where they stand um times everybody's bit more their expectations are managed it's 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 very much it gives clarity for people and I guess in some cases you know the the seller is probably staying on for a transitional period so it really makes sense to have a smooth amicable transaction you don't exactly want to be fighting with each other because you're going to be working with that person as you rightly said this is the person that knows the business inside out that can really help you when you go in on your first day so it really helps to have a a nice professional friendly environment and and relationship yeah exactly well thank you both so much for joining me today I can go on about this topic for for a long time (laughs) but thank you both so much it's really clear that you have lots of experience and it's just helpful to know I guess if anybody is considering buying there's just these things that need to be considered and thank you so much for um all of your knowledge and sharing your knowledge (laughs) thank you ever so much for having us thank you for having us I really hope you've enjoyed this episode and hopefully learned a few things. I know I certainly did. And as always, don't forget to let me know what you thought of this episode. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Dr. Shadi Manucheri. I always love hearing your responses. And if you have any requests for future podcast episodes, please let me know there. I do usually listen if there are specific requests that are quite popular. As always, there will be a new episode every week. So please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. And I can't wait to speak to you soon.